Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we train ourselves to think and perform better during times of crisis. ER doctors or not, we all face emergencies in our lives, and this podcast is all about getting better at acting during times of uncertainty and stress and learning how to apply knowledge under pressure. So listen up, train hard, and enjoy, because you never know what's coming your way next. To learn more about building your emergency mind and to dig deeper into many of the concepts we get into in this podcast series, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. This episode is a conversation with Dr. Andrea Austin. Dr. Austin is Lieutenant Commander, Active Duty, Navy Emergency Physician, the Simulation Director, and an Emergency Medicine Physician at the Navy Trauma Training Center at USC and LA County. She is an Assistant Professor at both the Keck School of Medicine at USC and also the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda, Maryland. She holds an undergraduate degree in biology from the University of Northern Iowa, and is a graduate of the Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. She did her internship and emergency medicine residency at the Naval Medical Center of San Diego, where she also served as the simulation director for emergency medicine and also an assistant program director. Her operational experience includes a deployment with the Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force to Al-Assad, Iraq, and Kuwait from 2016 to 2017. Quite obviously, she is a really amazing human being, and somebody that I am proud to get a chance to work with and happy to have on the podcast to talk about the emergency mind. During the course of our conversation, we dive deeply into the ideas of simulation and visualization, not only as tools to train a particular technique, but to train in general our mindset during a crisis. We also talk extensively about pressure as a creative force and about how operating under pressure is crucial for exposing critical flaws in our logic and thinking that pave the way for further evolution. As always on this podcast, our mission is to dive into applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide specific medical advice. Additionally, our opinions are our own and not those of our respective employers. Because of her position with the U.S. Navy, Dr. Austin also has an additional disclaimer for this podcast. The views that I express today are those of my own and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Navy, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. With all of that said, let's get to the episode. I hope you enjoy. Andrea, I'm really excited that you're here today talking with us about this. It's an honor to have you. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's really good to be here. As we were talking about the podcast sort of before getting started, you were mentioning that there was a really particular case that, that stands out to you as an excellent example of sort of using your mindset skills in an emergency. And I believe it was a case of a small child. Is that right? Yes. Why don't you can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that mm -hmm. and sort of how that, how that brought you into more focused thinking about these skills? Mm -hmm. So this case happened shortly after I had returned from a deployment. And during that deployment, I took care of no babies. And this case also occurred on the final night of a string of night shifts. So it was my fifth night and within the last hour of my shift. So... I think anybody who's worked night shifts understands that they take a toll on you and I felt cognitively depleted going into that last shift and certainly in the last hour. It's a good way to put that, cognitively depleted. Yes. And baby comes in, I saw the um, baby's age and chief complaint, fussiness on the track board that we use to monitor patients coming in. And I could actually hear the baby crying, which for those of us that are in medicine, knowing knowing that a baby crying is uh, certainly better than a baby not crying. Absolutely. So initially I wasn't overly concerned and the vital signs were consistent with a baby crying. And also um, she was not febrile, which those of us um, involved in medicine know in the first month of life, having a, a baby that's not running a fever is a good thing as well. So initially I wasn't overly concerned and when I went in and looked at the baby, um, she looked a little dry, but again, she had a very vigorous cry. So I felt like, okay, something's going on. She's crying more than usual, which is a really large differential, a lot of different possibilities, but I wasn't really in like, this is a critical emergency situation. And so I left the room with really not a lot of clarity about 
what I should do, what approach I should take. Should I take a really aggressive approach and do a really large, um, aggressive, invasive workup or kind of minimalize things? And I realized that I was thinking a little, um, not as clearly as I wanted to. So I kind of separated myself from the case and thought about if this was a simulation, how would I approach this? And thinking back to a pediatric simulation, one of the ideas that we really drill into residents and trainees is any sick child should get a glucose. And certainly small babies are at risk for having hypoglycemia. So we got the blood sugar and it came back undetectably low. So, so low, the glucometer could not even measure it. At this moment, I'm thinking, how can this child be crying and have this low of a blood sugar? And I thought, oh, maybe we have this moment that we can intervene and get a a bottle in um, the child's mouth and start feeding her and avoid having to do this really aggressive um, interventions. But as things would have it um, within seconds, um, she started to decompensate and started to have apneic episodes where she was stopped. She was not breathing um, for long periods of time. So we moved into full resuscitation mode at that point um, with several nurses in the room, several physicians, all of us trying to get some form of IV access. Um, But in this age group, it's often very difficult to get IVs in general, and then um, we realized that she was extremely dehydrated and that was making things even worse. So at that point, it became clear we were going to have to put in an IO. I was the most experienced person in the room, so I decided that that would be my job, that this was critical to get the IO placed and and, and just to stop you, an IO, if you don't know, is where you don't put a line into a person's vein, you drill a line directly into one of their bones, and it's done as sort of an emergency backup access method. Exactly, and especially a, a very good option for pediatric cases. I initially chose the tibia as the site to try to get an IO in, and unfortunately, I backwalled um, two times in a row, mm-hmm. and at this point, I became not panicked, but I became very concerned that if we did not get some form of access that the child would die. Um, So I started to think about what other options I had. I asked for someone to get a central line kit to the bedside, um, which we don't often put uh, central lines in this age of child in the emergency department, but I was just thinking of we have to get access some way. And then I thought about uh, trying to place an NG tube as well to put glucose Mm. down the nose into the stomach directly and then i started mobilizing all of our other resources which quite frankly at that time of day i wasn't sure how quickly people would get down to the bedside but i thought it was worth um, calling the NICU the PICU really um, all personnel that we could potentially get that could be helpful fortunately on the third time i did get the IO line into the femur and it worked great and that was the only line she had um, for the first half of her day in the uh, pediatric intensive care unit Um, they were unable to get any access other than that one io and and she did fine but it was certainly a case that showed me how our training how we will fall to really our level of training and Simulation in particular was a really important part of my training and something I called on in that moment. Wow, that's an, that's an amazing case. Uh, what a humbling moment. And that, that moment that all of us in the ER face in one form or another when you're two backups into a thing, right? You've tried something, it doesn't work. Your, second ba- your backup comes online and that doesn't work. Your second backup doesn't work. That moment is a particular moment that we all face on a on an all too often sort of frequency when things start to take a a really sharp left turn like that is there anything that you in particular do to refocus yourself as you're as you're reaching for that third backup yeah there's a couple things that i do and one of them is acknowledge that the situation is very serious i think in a prior podcast you mentioned that we can't be Pollyanna so it helps me to just acknowledge that wow we're in a really critical situation 
And then I quickly flip into, okay, we're in a critical situation, let's get to work. And the other thing that I think about a lot is I realize I'm not the best emergency physician in every single facet that you could find an emergency physician that might be better at intubating or maybe somebody who's better with central lines. But I know I'm pretty good. And I also know for this particular patient at this particular moment, I'm all they've got and I have to really suck it up you know, suck it up, buttercup is um, one of the phrases one of my mentors uses. And I think that's a big part of what we do as emergency physicians is the cards are often stacked way against us. And we're put into very difficult situations routinely. And I, I guess we put ourselves into these situations. And we have to have this really deep resiliency. And then also what I find a very rapid resiliency that you have to be able to quickly realize that something you were doing wasn't working and maybe you need to think more about that later debrief it learn more about it but in this moment you have to keep moving forward that's really interesting i want to unpack that a little bit so the idea that you can recognize that something isn't working and that you need to make a change is a really important skill. And you and I both teach junior doctors as they're, as they're training to become emergency, sort of full-fledged emergency physicians. And I know it's something we've talked about before is how do you teach somebody the, the interesting mix of, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's humility plus flexibility that allows you to say, hey, this approach isn't working and I need to recognize that and, and, and make a turn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really complex skill because part of realizing that something isn't working is the experience to know that it's not working. And I think, you know, with procedures, sometimes without a lot of experience in it, you don't actually realize that the approach that you're taking, the way you're doing something, what, you, what blade you chose, whatever it may be, is not going to work well in this situation. Um, I think the point that you make about being humble and having humility is very, very important. And I think early on, when people are still gaining their experience, that's why it's so important that they're around people that can give them feedback and guide them. Um, the other thing that I think is like a very high level skill and still something I'm developing, but I can certainly tell a huge difference now versus, you know, five years ago, is the ability in the moment that something's going very badly to be able to step back and recognize the things that I have control over and that I may be influencing or need to change versus the things that I can't. And we know as emergency physicians that many of our patients, the injuries that they've sustained, the illnesses that they have, no matter what we do, are not survivable or will not have a good outcome. But early on in training, I think the really difficult part is realizing how much of that is the patient's disease or the trauma that happened to them versus you as the individual doctor. And I've also found this true outside of medicine and in some of the administrative work that even though I've prepared for a meeting, I feel that I've prepared the best case for what I think is best for the simulation lab or the department, that sometimes things don't always go your way, uh, even when you feel very strongly that this was the right way for something to go and that some of this is just outside of our control and that's certainly been the thing in the last couple of years that I've noticed has um, given me a lot more serenity and ability to come back to work of recognizing that I can do my best clinically, I can do my best administratively and that's really all I can do and certainly there might be and there will be time afterwards to consider if there was a different approach. But honestly, early on in emergency medicine, I think we can drive ourselves crazy with thinking about how will I ever be able to do this job? How will I ever be able to handle the, the breadth of the patients that come in, the complications between their disease and their social 
components and you can just run this loop of second guessing yourself and while it's healthy to be humble and to continue to grow it's not healthy to have this self-doubt and really be questioning yourself um, during those emergencies yeah that's very very well said and it, it, we're actually we're sitting next to a book of letters from seneca the stoic philosopher and the stoic philosophers have a lot to say about this as well marcus aurelius the stoic philosopher and roman emperor just boils it down really quickly and says recognize what is within you and what is outside of you focus on one and let the other be what it will and that's where you find your strength and that's a, a real theme of stoic philosophy too and of a lot of what we talk about in the emergency mind is focusing your energy where it's needed and not allowing it to dissipate into space and that is definitely easier with practice like you mm-hmm. said and I, and I think that's something that we should we should 100% dig into more a, a, another version of that of that practice is understanding how to uncouple your sense of self from the particular outcome of a thing and, and if I look mm-hmm. at my you know my own development as a doctor when I started and you were mentioning this as well, I was really tied personally to the outcome of a case. If a case didn't go well, this was me. This was this was a big problem. And I, my image of myself would be sort of shattered by that. And now, thankfully, over time, you realize that things don't always turn out the way that you want them to turn out. And being mm-hmm. able to step back and say, but that doesn't change my kernel of myself. The question is, how good was I at delivering myself to this situation? Um, I had a, a circumstance maybe in my my third or fourth year of residency. Uh, I was really getting my feet under me. I felt like I had my chops, and I missed a really crucial line. And I was just beating myself up for it. And, and one of the the older, wiser, and uh, more brilliant doctors came up to me and said, "You know, listen, I've missed more things than you've ever even thought about trying. <laughs> Suck it up and get back to work." Yeah potentially more colorful language than that. But that really stuck with me, that idea of like, wait, we do not always succeed in this game, but yeah. we do have the ability to, to try to give the best of what we can to it. There's a really interesting book by a professional poker player, Annie Dukes. I honestly forget if it's Duke or Dukes, uh, but she talks a lot about the difference between a win and a loss and a success and a failure in mm-hmm. poker. But there's a lot of uh, equivalencies to emergency medicine. So she talks about a win or a loss being the outcome of the hand of poker, but mm-hmm. a success or failure being did you play the hand to the best of your ability. There's, there's obviously some corollaries there for us. We can do the best we can and succeed at delivering our medicine and still have a bad outcome. Or sometimes we can get lucky and have a good outcome even when we didn't do our best. Um, understanding how that plays into our day-to-day and our, our resilience, our ability to show up again the next day after a crucial case. Is, mm-hmm. is a big thing for us. Shifting gears slightly back to training, when mm-hmm. you're talking about, about training people to try to deliver the best they can in a circumstance, I know this is a field you've spent a lot of time and energy thinking about. How did you first get into that kind of an idea of that being one of the pillars of what you'd spend your time doing? Yeah, so I did residency at uh, Naval Medical Center San Diego, and one of the major ways we deliver educational content is via simulation. And simulation actually comprised about 25% of my residency education, and then I stayed on as the simulation director for emergency medicine and later as an assistant program director, and we continued that, and we had about 25% of our time devoted to academics was simulation based and now that I've gone away from my home program and um, interacted a lot more with programs across the country I realize how unique that really is and I'm a huge believer in simulation um, for multiple reasons Um, one of it is you know honestly it's an active form of education I think any of us involved in education and anybody maybe under age um, 50 right now, um, we all understand that our attention spans are shrinking, uh, probably largely related to technology. And what I like about simulation, both as a learner and as an educator, is I have yet to have anyone fall asleep during one of my simulation (laughs) cases. They have fallen asleep during lectures before sim, but during the simulation, um, you really are able to engage people. The other thing I really like about simulation, and especially for emergency medicine, but this really is applicable to any field that 
has some type of critical event that can happen, whether it's aviation or police or military. Simulation allows us to experience cases, one, before we actually are faced with true consequences. So I, you know, I joke with my residents all the time that, you know, at the end of the day, you killed the sim man. It's not a big mm -hmm. deal. This wasn't a real patient. And aren't we so lucky that this is a plastic machine and not an actual patient that we were able to explore this really key concept. And then two, we focus a lot on low frequency, high risk situations. And I think any, any field has these, these situations that you know are rare, but you know, the joke again in emergency medicine or what I tell my residents is your patients don't care that it's rare. They came to you. They came to you expecting the best. And you know, they don't understand that a pediatric jet ventilation, you know, having to stick a tube in a very small um, child's airway is an event that only happens, you know, if you're, you know, most of us are lucky once, if ever, in our career. But you need to be ready to do that every day. And then once I realized I was going to end up in academics, it was a no-brainer for me that um, I, I really do have an interest in a, a large variety of um, subfields within emergency medicine. But for me, um, simulation really involves a lot of that, whether it's toxicology or critical care. And um, it allows me to spend a lot of time um, honing my own skills along with teaching people. Yeah, that's excellent. I, lo I love that idea of your patient doesn't care how rare it is. They still need you to do it. That's, that's really well said. And, yeah. Um, I, I also came from a program that did a lot of sim. Uh, and, you know, a thing that really struck me about it, as you're saying, is not only your ability to train and overtrain, but, but that it would honestly sometimes be almost celebrated if you killed the sim person. Like, congratulations, you have killed the sim person. Now you won't ever make this mistake and you can move forward on it. You've gotten past this sort of a barrier, um, which is a little bit of, of, of our typical gallows humor, but definitely worth, worth pursuing. The other thing that I, that I really like about it is that you don't just have the ability to practice or simulate different physical techniques or approaches to a patient. You also have the ability to try out different sort of mental frameworks and structures. Uh, and heuristics. And when you were describing the story earlier about your approach to this sick baby, um, there's a lot of subtle things that happen in there that, that really are the result of a lot of energy of thinking about thinking and sharpening your mind, not just your mental knowledge. So when you said, hey, I realized the baby is decompensating and it was time to switch into full resuscitation mode, now, that might sound like okay, just another thing you say, but, but I know that internally there's a lot of machinery that's clicking into place and things that are firing up when something like that happens. Um, I, I guess there's really two ways to, that we could choose to explore that. One would be to talk about how do you teach that through simulation? How do you teach mental structures and processes through simulation? And, and another really equally interesting way would be to discuss how did you first start thinking about your own mental machinery? So the, the first part of that question is super interesting. And as a simulation educator, frequently when I have people come into the sim lab, they have an expectation of, oh, this is going to be a crazy case. This is going to be a critical case. So in some ways, they're already primed to be in that resuscitation mindset but what's interesting about that and I think we really understand this intuitively as emergency physicians is the concept of when do I need to use my slower brain my data gathering asking a lot of questions and when do I flip into more algorithmic thinking and so one of the things uh, we really try to hit on during simulation and that I expect from them is that they really try to treat this simulation as they would an actual patient. And as we know, even when people are really sick and their vital signs are concerning, you have some things starting, maybe you're doing some algorithms, but you also have to, or you have to delegate to someone 
to use more of a slower brain and do some history taking. And often the history is where a lot of the answers come, uh, come from. So it's interesting that I have to sometimes push them or I sometimes have to even stop a case, explain during the debrief or explore that, hey, you, you know, had the patient intubated and at no point did you ever gather any history, did you ever you know, do a neurological exam or anything like that. And you know, there were some really key pieces of information that got missed and would have impacted how you would have proceeded throughout the case. So that's something really interesting and oftentimes what students will tell me is, well, I didn't do it because it was a sim. And I never take that for an excuse. Hmm. Um, so I tell them that you have to treat this as you would an actual patient. Of course, there's some things that we have to bridge and some things as the instructor that I have to provide to you. But what I have found over time is when they say, oh yeah, well, I forgot to do the neurological exam because the sim man doesn't really have a neuro exam and you have to provide the prompt. Well, I also saw that you forgot that in the clinical space. Sure. So the more that they can prove that they're able to do things um, thoroughly and methodically in the sim lab and hone that ability, I really feel that it translates into the clinical space. And that's something I learned from my mentor, uh, Carrie King, who was the first uh, Navy Trauma Training Center emergency physician and my mentor and started the sim program in San Diego at our Naval Hospital is this extreme methodical way of thinking and no matter how crazy things are you still go back to the same way of doing things because when you deviate from that you miss things and you know I think a classic example and one of the sim cases we really like to do is something that looks like a trauma that's actually a medical case that you know someone's crashed their car but they've crashed it because they have a subarachnoid hemorrhage or they have um, an, an MI. And I love that case because if you do things the same way and get the same studies you would in every emergency, all of this comes through. But frequently people skip steps and take shortcuts. And heuristics is a wonderful thing, but you know, us as emergency physicians have to be so attuned to when we're making shortcuts that can be harmful. Uh, you know, a rule of SIM has always been you get out of it what you put into it. And if you develop a good SIM and you as the, the learner, the person trying to improve themselves, doesn't throw yourself into it full bore, you're not going to expose those mental faults, those places where you need to really improve yourself. Um, I was just reading this interesting book called Peak, uh, and I forget the authors, but I'll put it in the show notes, that talks about studying top-tier performers, ballerinas and chess masters and people like this. And one of the things it always talks about is about running yourself into problems over and over again to see where your logic and your mental models fail, and then designing training to build you to the next step of that. And that works so well for emergency medicine because you want to hit these faults before you see them on a patient before you're the only doctor in the hospital but it only works when we throw ourselves into it i don't know if he's listening to this or not but my one of my old roommates from residency used to always make fun of me about how seriously i took sim uh, because i you know for me this was this was my chance right this is free learning this is a chance to throw yourself in and find those faults and break it down um, right. and that thought process about how do you use a heuristic versus a more systemic algorithmic approach is a really fascinating deep discussion especially when you start throwing lots of pressure on top of that where maybe there's a cost to moving from one system to the other and it's not a it's not a cheap or free thing um, there's uh, interestingly uh, came across my instagram feed the other day from this uh, this group school of grappling one of the jujitsu people that I follow, and he's got this really interesting post, which is actually entitled Heuristics versus Systems in Jiu-Jitsu, and talks at a jujitsu level how to break down when you take an algorithmic approach and when you take a more heuristic sort of feel things out and take shortcuts approach. And it's, I'll, I'll put the notes to that in the show notes as well, but it's really a, 
a fascinating sidebar that's worth looking into also. When you first start training people who are brand new to emergencies, and these could be emergency doctors or any of the folks in the Navy that you work with, Mm -hmm. how do you introduce that concept to them? Because I think that, that you and I can sit here and talk about our heuristics and our mental machinery, but that's because we've spent a long time believing that something like that happens and, and works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where were you introduced to that and or how do you teach that to somebody who maybe has never had an emergency background before? Mm-hmm. So I think early on in training, people can't use heuristics. I mean, you can, but you're pretty at risk for making a mistake. So Mm -hmm. I think early on, we really focus on being thorough, having more of these algorithms and having this approach where, you know, I think sometimes junior learners will look at a very senior attending that walks into a room and it's very sick patient and they're in there for less than two minutes and they come out and they have a very keen sense of of the problems, the issues and what what should happen next and you know you have to help learners understand that that was 30 years of experience that walked into that room um, that there's so many different things that they are attuned to that you don't even know to be attuned to yet so I really focus on well don't compare yourself to that person that's crazy that's um, very true don't even compare yourself to one person one somebody who's a year ahead of you in residency that's even fraught with peril so, and you can kind of compare yourself to your classmates, but you got to be careful with that. Um, but really, you have to be attuned to your own personal development and not taking shortcuts. And I think another example of kind of how do we think and what do we use in emergency medicine, um, we have a lot of decision tools that we use. They're essentially checklists to double check that maybe our heuristic thinking about something is correct. And a perfect example of this is I had a patient with chest pain the other day and using heuristics, I left the room and I overall felt that, okay, there's some concerning features, but overall I think this person can go home. I'm not really that concerned. And then I went back to my desk and I was actually teaching a medical student who had never heard about the heart score which is a decision rule we use to ensure somebody is actually safe to leave the emergency department. And when we went through that, there were a couple of things that I had minimized Hmm. um, with kind of my fast thinking and actually going through and doing the checklist that pushed over the edge that this needed to stay in the hospital and needed a cardiology consult. And it was a perfect example of showing that, yeah, over time, you do get really good at using this faster form of thinking and often you end up reaching the same conclusion, but be careful of that as well. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. How do you develop the tools internally that allow you to, to learn from systems and to upgrade your thinking? Because mm-hmm. like you said earlier, we fall or we rise to the level of our training. I mean, I think some of it is listening to podcasts like this, and there's been other things in emergency medicine and a book that I really like, The Warrior um, Mindset, that really goes through how can we affect the way we think or think about metacognition, think about the way we're thinking. And I think exposing people to that sooner in their training is better. Really, my critique of you know, education, I don't know, maybe medical education prior to 10 years ago is we didn't really do a lot of that with trainees and a lot of medical education was simply the apprenticeship model. And if you see enough, then eventually you'll be good at this. And I find that just crazy that why wouldn't you start at a very early age? Um, I don't think I had any lectures like this in medical school or none that I recall. I think the first time I was exposed to thinking about um, cognitive traps and pitfalls was during residency, but it seems so important to me that we start this education very early on to start to train people to be critical of the way that they're making decisions. And 
sometimes this is very hard to do in the heat of battle, um, you know, at the bedside to really be thinking about the way you're thinking. But I, I think as emergency physicians, the longer you do this, the more you start to realize that the moments in which you need to act within seconds are very infrequent. And that most things, you can slow down a little bit. And sometimes it only takes one minute of jotting down a differential or one minute of verbalizing the primary survey or going over with your team what's going on and immediately you start to uncover um, some pitfalls to what you were thinking or what you assumed was going on. So I think that's been one of the things that we talk a lot about in simulation is one, it's not all on you. Use your team and when you invite people in to have a shared mental model, a lot of times you can put in these safety checks to your thinking. Knowing when you have to make a decision right away and when you can pause and regroup and consider. And I think one of the parts that you mentioned was simulation and if people get a lot out of it and if they can take it seriously. You have to be humble to be good at emergency medicine. You have to realize when you need to pause and whether that's you need to go sit down for a minute and really try to think through the EKG or whatever piece of data is starting to stand out at you is something that you need to spend a minute really thinking about um, and what are the moments that you need to get help or get a consultant um, and that ability to have the self-awareness and also be willing to communicate to your team like I need a minute and actually I'm not sure about this um, I think are really really key and I, I think I've been at different places and different programs and different settings deployed back home and sometimes ego gets in the way with these decisions that I have to make a decision right now because I'm the ED doc. I'm not going to call somebody. Um, I can handle this myself. And, you know, I think any time that you start to put yourself ahead of the patient's interests, um, things start to go awry. So taking those pauses and really, again, it's hard to do in the heat of battle, but taking a step back and trying to, even just for a minute, think about is there any potential pitfalls or traps that I'm falling into with this case. Hmm. That idea of knowing when you are forced to act, and if you're forced to act, throw your entire body weight behind what you're doing mm -hmm. and move. And then recognizing the difference between that and when you are under pressure but not actually forced to act and can therefore pause, regroup, and discuss your next move is a really crucial thing. And while you're describing this to me, because you happen to be sitting across this table from me, and you're describing your ability to take that moment, you do something that I do too, which is that you close your eyes when you're talking about that. Mm -hmm. And my guess is your internal machinery is similar to mine for that, but let's, let's make that implicit explicit here. When you take that second to pause and regroup, what are you doing? <sighs> A lot of times it's just getting quiet, I think is a key step for me. I People that know me um, know I like to talk and I, I generally have a pretty, um, my volume can be loud at times even, uh, but it's really a quieting and having that quietness to actually be able to focus. And then I try to breathe and you know, I think that's something I continue to work on. That um, when I remember to do it, it's it's extremely helpful. Um, when you remember to breathe, that is, is there a particular technique you use for that? I know you and I have talked in different circumstances right. about battle breathing versus mm -hmm. 
sometimes called tactical breathing versus just like a deep yogic breath. Like what is it that you... Yeah, I think the box breathing, the four seconds in, hold for four seconds, out um, for four seconds, hold for four seconds is great. But usually if I'm really kind of jazzed up, that's hard for me to do initially. So it's just coming back to my breath and really focusing for me through my nose, out through my nose. It's a lot more um, deliberate than just kind of through my mouth. Um, the other thing I do sometimes, and I do this less, but it was helpful more for me as a resident, is I'm, I like to write, and so sometimes I just needed to take a step back and write down some key points. Um, I found this really helpful um, when a patient with a cardiac arrest would come in, and I mean, honestly, you know your team knows how to get the patient on the monitors. and that they need access. And so I really needed to focus on getting information from EMS. And I found that my head was just kind of spinning during those times. So the act of writing um, helped me focus. Interesting. So knowing yourself and knowing the internal cues that help you focus, because I do think that's a very sort of uh, personal and um, internal decision process or internal knowledge of yourself about what does it. I, I would never be able to write something down like that. That would completely sort of like knock me off of the rails in terms of what I was doing. Um, but I often stand when EMS is coming in like that and I take my own pulse. Uh, for me, it's a very similar thing. It's a calming mechanism and an ability to take a second and, and do that regroup. Um, and I think whatever that anchor is for you, you, know, you develop that over time and practice. Uh, I wonder if that's a thing that can be simmed, by the way, now that I'm saying that out loud. Like, that moment seems like it's worth worth practicing a little bit. Yeah, I think we should definitely talk about that more with trainees and, you know, whatever that is for somebody, whatever thing can center them. I think that's something that we've kind of, again, the cowboy culture of emergency medicine, that we've kind of poo-pooed things like that, that it's kind of like soft or weird or why would you have to do something like that? Um, and then the other thing I feel very passionate about and something that I've worked really hard on the last year is we actually train people to completely ignore any of their internal alarms, essentially. And you know the experience of medical education of you know working 80 hours a week standing in an OR, not going to the bathroom for eight hours, um, not eating, not drinking. And what that ends up doing and what I realized for me is I had essentially lost the ability to cue into any of my own internal alarms that I actually was getting stressed. And so then it would kind of like spill over in a way that I wasn't really happy with, with getting short with a consultant or... Um, just having an, an action that if I had been more calm, I would not have done. But that's largely how we've trained people. I think we're just in the last few years starting to reverse that trend. And I think it's so important because a lot of this, if you start to realize that you're getting too keyed up, and you intervene earlier, you can get yourself calmed down, you can get back to that clearer mindset and approach problems better. Um, you know, I always joke, and but I'm serious about this, if I know a patient um, is coming in that's really sick or we're about to go in and do a procedure, um, go to the bathroom. It's Absolutely. awful, it's awful to Absolutely. be standing there and like you really have to pee and that's a horrible feeling. And but we've largely taught people to ignore that physiologic thing and you know it's this thing of pride that oh I went my entire shift I didn't go to the bathroom I didn't yeah, eat it's nonsense yeah. it's silly that is total nonsense I, com I completely agree on that we are both people that you know at various times run the resuscitation unit at one of the busiest hospitals in the country and when you sit us down and ask us what we think about we think about going slower, we think about being quieter, and we think about being calmer. Because mm -hmm. implicit in that is our collective understanding that our best thinking, our best ability to deliver our knowledge to the patient, 
comes when we are calm and fluid, not when we are amped up. And the popular view of sort of what an emergency is, this crisis and this yelling. And I had a family member come visit and they spent a few minutes in the ER to see what I did. And their initial thought was, or their initial comment to me was, you know, I really figured there'd be more people screaming all the time. And I think that's a that's just sort of the the idea of what we do. But reality of what we do is all, not all, but a lot about slowing ourselves down and making sure the knowledge gets to where it needs to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I've watched, I don't know, hundreds of simulations um, at this point. And the last year I've had the, the privilege of watching really team-based simulations on a regular basis. And over and over and over again, we see that the quietest teams tend to be the best teams. Mm. And it's really fascinating to watch these teams that are very, um, very quiet, but you can still, you can hear everyone talking, you can hear the closed loop communication. And to me, it's just like this beautiful, soft symphony um, versus the other teams. You can kind of see things starting to, to um, go sideways. And again, a lot of it's just um, related to the, the noise in the room. Hmm. That's, that's really interesting. What else have you seen as sort of structural themes from watching team-based simulation or really even individual simulation that was maybe unexpected or maybe more broadly applicable? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the basics, you know, the fundamentals of teams, whether it's a sports team or a medical team, is, of course, everybody has to have a role. The thing that's interesting about a lot of the team training we do at um, Navy Trauma Training is we're really focused on small teams and frequently during these teams they're expecting to do one role but because they're so small they have to flex into another role so they really have to be aware of everything that's happening all the time so they can be super flexible Um, the other thing that i've noticed is team leader clarity um, and i've I've certainly been in situations where the team leader has not been clearly defined and it's extremely frustrating to everybody in the room or there's this kind of back and forth banter between, you know, oftentimes in trauma, the emergency person and the surgeon. And it's very confusing to the team about who they're supposed to be listening to. And then the thing that to me really separates teams that are kind of playing at like the JV level versus the varsity level are the ones that have this shared mental model, which is largely driven by the team leader and having the ability to articulate what is actually going on and what the priorities are. And it's, it's a balance. You don't want to be too verbose and too confusing to your team, but they have to understand and I'm going to focus primarily on trauma right now, but they have to understand the injury pattern and what the priorities are. So, you know, when we have a patient that has a GSW to the chest and they're developing tension physiology, at that point, the most important thing is to decompress the chest. And everybody has to know that and be working towards that. Um, I can also think back to a a case in which um, we had somebody with blunt cardiac trauma. This was an actual case, not a simulation. And it became very clear that the only way this patient was going to survive was to get to the operating room as quickly as possible. And the surgeon at that point said, we have to have this patient ready in five minutes. We have to be on the way to the OR in five minutes and just help the team immediately focus. So I think those are the main, um, main things that I've seen. And Also, that the team leader has to be humble and receptive to feedback because I don't care how good you are, somebody on your team will find out a piece of information that is absolutely crucial. And at the end of the day, we're humans, and if they don't think that you are going to be respectful and receptive, they may hold on to that piece of information, which is so silly. But at the end of the day, they don't want to get yelled at. They don't want to um, be made to feel silly. And um, that's the, the other thing that I've noticed. Yeah, medicine is a team sport, right? And right. 
our ability to, to execute these plans and to, to lead a team requires us to have that whole vision of the space and to, and to work with each other about that. And it's also, you know, the best resuscitation teams, they're not a one-off thing. Right? You work with people over and over again, and, and you're, you're saying hi to them in the morning, and your uh, understanding of them human to human is what builds that connection that is relied upon in the heat of the moment like that. And that's, I think, one of the things that I find the most satisfying about working in the emergency department is you are part of a team, and your mission is clear, and you're there together to try to get it done, um, right. whether you happen to be the leader that day or not, depending on what you're doing. Right. The, the last thing I will say about that, though, is as much as I love talking about teamwork and shared mental models, communication, competency is the bedrock, right? Absolutely. So if we don't have competency, then we, we can't move forward. So everybody on the team has to be competent in their lane. And, and that plays in the simulation as well. So, you know, we can work on task trainers or cadaver lab and work on skills and then eventually you're creating complex scenarios that involve using those skills under increasing um, stressful conditions so that to me is like the full package of Mm. like a a cohesive well-run simulation program is people learn their skills under non-stressful conditions they perfect those skills and that's very key to me that they have extreme extremely high performance of those skills under non-stressful conditions. And then we put them into situations in which they have to perform these uh, skills under increasing levels of stress and increasing levels of complexity. And I've always found it completely backwards and crazy to think that you could take somebody that hasn't learned a skill and really have competency with no stress and under just having to execute that skill and then put them into a complex scenario. At least not on purpose, although that does happen to us multiple times because of demands right. of the situation. But but you're right that that, I, that idea, that arc of learn your skill, learn it damn well, and then throw it under pressure and see what happens is, I mean, sign me up. I want more of that too. Right, right. And to circle back to how people can get the most out of simulations, and I've seen people come into the simulation lab and not take it seriously or have a sometimes just a bad attitude. You can just tell, like, I don't want to be here. Or I'm going to just make jokes of this and, like, make, you know, light of it. I think you've mentioned that you know, you always took sim very seriously because it is such an opportunity. And sometimes when I, when I see people doing that, it's that they just don't really want to make themselves vulnerable to learn something. Mm-hmm. And they're really missing out because this is an opportunity where the learning is, is free and if we make a mistake, nobody gets hurt. And that's such a beautiful thing. And, you know, in medicine or whether it's aviation or something else that you can go through a scenario and at the end of the day, everybody walks out and everyone's okay. Um, Why we wouldn't really full, like fully embrace that opportunity and throw ourselves into that. And kind of the last guilt trip I lay on um, residents when they come to simulation is maybe you're not feeling it today. Maybe for whatever reason, this isn't where you want to be but just know the way that you act here affects everyone around you. And somebody around you uh, really does want to have a good experience today. So I I think that's really important. And I think all of us that are involved in any career that involves training, and if you're involved in the designing of training, how do you make training that engages people and they actually it's well run enough that people want to be engaged and be there. I think, um, you know, it's not just on the individual level, it's the people that are running the training. Are you making this valuable? You know, you can have a simulation in which the educators do very little prep work and it turns into essentially a dialogue versus a very realistic, you have the right equipment, you have everything there that really forces them to do the actual tasks and treat this like a real real event. So I think that's the best way to do simulation. And I think 
when people tell me that they don't like sim, a lot of times it's because they've been involved in simulations in which they they didn't really get to have the full experience. Hmm. So we've been talking a lot so far about using simulation to drive your performance under pressure and that arc of mastering your skill to then applying it under pressure. I want to take a slight left turn, which is that for people that are uh, potentially listening that aren't emergency doctors or that don't have access to a simulation center or somebody like yourself who's, who you know wakes up and thinks about how to throw curveballs at people in ways that teach them how to hit curveballs better, what what do they do? How are some of these principles applicable to people that are outside of our particular domain? I think whatever field you're in, you have scenarios that make you go, ooh. So, you know, maybe it's your customer service and you know when you have a difficult customer come in, this is a high stress thing for you and how and really your performance in that situation is maybe graded by your boss or there's consequences to how you handle that situation. So I think first step is making a list of the scenarios and whatever line of work you do that bother you, concern you, cause angst, indigestion, whatever whatever it is. And honestly, that's the first step. And what I find as humans, most of us don't even want to do that. We don't even want to sit there and think about that because one, it makes us anxious Two, there's vulnerability in that, that you're admitting to yourself that there's some things that you may not be very good at or you could be better at. After you make that list, then you need to come up with a plan for addressing that. And that really depends on what would make sense for the list you've created and what you have access to for resources. So sometimes you realize there's something on that list that this is a knowledge issue. I I need to read more about this. I need to find a video. I need to go take a course um, to get better at this. Other times it's like, well, I know everything about this. I've, I've read every single thing published on this problem, but I'm finding that I still get nervous about it. So then your options are one visualization and everybody can do that because we all walk around with our brain. Um, The problem with visualization is most of us are lazy and when it comes to thinking through a scenario we don't really think through it and we take shortcuts and you know for me if I'm going to think about doing a procedure in emergency medicine if I'm really visualizing it I need to visualize every aspect of how would the patient be positioned, where would I be standing, what pieces of equipment would I need, where would the light be, would I need an assistant, and then going through every single step. And I have to be honest with myself when I go through those steps and if I get to a point where I go, you know, actually, I can't remember what comes next or I can't really remember what piece of equipment I would need then I've uncovered a knowledge issue and I need to go back and read and then or watch a video and then I have to go back to the visualization and see if I can actually make it all the way through. And that requires a lot of perseverance, a lot of attention to detail to really do a visualization in that level of um, detail. And then what I'd also say, besides visualization, um, you can do role playing. So you can um, talk out a scenario with somebody. You can tabletop things. Um, you can do walkthrough drills that don't involve um, simulation, that you bring the pieces of equipment or whatever's pertinent to your situation to that environment and you talk through it and go through it. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that you can do besides having a simulation. Some of the stuff that's really stood out to me so far about what we've talked about has been our ideas about simulation and visualization to to get ourselves better at the not just the macro picture of our job but the individual pieces of our job and using that to shape our mental models, our structures and to really hone in on what it takes to to master our craft. Um, you know, as 
we're walking away from this, is there anything else that you want to make sure that people think about um, or anything else that you want you want people to be focused on, whether ER doctors or not? I'd like to leave people with a quote from a book called The Warrior Mindset. And if you found anything that I said interesting today, I would highly recommend reading that book. And it's actually about how our mind impacts really police and military about how they respond to critical situations. But the entire time I read it, it's so applicable to emergency medicine. And one of the quotes from the book says, the premise is quite simple. All training should be three-dimensional, i.e. it should blend the emotional, the psychological, and the physical arsenals. Anything you work on should connect to some sort of scenario so that irrespective of that drill, there's an emotional and psychological rationale for the exercise. This way, the training triggers and creates connections between all three arsenals. So I would say do stuff that matters and spend time really considering how you can make whatever training, education you do sink in and matter because we're all too busy to do stuff that doesn't matter. Andrea, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about this. It's an absolute honor to have you here and and, uh, looking forward to exploring this more with you in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emergency Mind podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, I hope you found something in there that you can use next time you find yourself in the middle of an emergency. To learn more about what we talked about in this episode and about building your emergency mind in general, head over to our website at emergencymind.com.